0: it appeared as if I had figured it out. All those unbelievably difficult and confusing problems in my life seemed to be solved in an instant. And the
1: ease that I could repeat the solution was unbelievably easy. Welcome to the Vegan Wellness World Summit, Adam Sud a diabetes and weight loss coach founder of plant based for positive change a nonprofit advancing research of the effects of nutrition on mental health and addiction recovery outcomes he is a board member at heartwater 100% sustainable bottled water supplier he has his own f- amazing physical transformation dropped 180 pounds in weight and now coaches People. He's coached over 500 people on their health and fitness journey, and he is a like myself a former addict. So we're really excited to hear Adam's story. Welcome, Adam, to the Vegan Wellness World Summit.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm I'm happy to be here. This I'm excited to have this conversation with you.
1: Cool, cool, me too. Can you share with us to start with how you became vegan and where this journey started for you? Yeah, man. Uh, So
0: it started in uh i would say in actually in 2010 i think that's really where it started you know i had spent up until that point i had spent my whole life battling um uh people would say it was a an unhealthy relationship with food but it was a, an unhealthy relationship with myself um you know i had been with with the best of intentions there was a lot of criticism about my weight and about my food choices from my family growing up. Uh, I grew up in Texas and, um, I, I, you know, I, I felt like there were conditions that I had to meet in order to be acceptable to other people. Certainly not at all. Was this ever said to me, but that's how it felt, you know, being raised in the 1980s, early nineties, um, being criticized for food that was in our, in our house. Um, and you know, my, my dad has always been a health focused individual, marathoner captain of the high school basketball team, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, he had lost his dad to cancer. His mom had survived a heart attack and cancer then died in an accident. His sister would die from uh, diabetes complications. And so here's a man who had experienced so much trauma, uh, related to health and you know so for for him he sees someone he loves engaging in behavior that he perceives as threatening their health and you know for for like a lot of people i would say a lot of people the the mentality is oh fix it and fix it looks a lot like criticism um and when you're 10 criticism is hard to understand and i i thought i was i was the issue i couldn't i couldn't disconnect self from behavior and um, I would engage in closet eating behavior. I got diagnosed with ADHD and that made me feel even more like there was just something else, you know, that wasn't right with me. And and I, I can re- actually remember um, the day that the doctor was in the doctor's office and the doctor was like, oh, hey, again, not the words exactly. But, you know, here's there's this you have this thing and it's called attention deficit hyperactive disorder. And don't worry, because we we're, we have a solution for you, and it's a pill and as long as you take this pill, no one's ever going to know as and again, that's not the words, but that's what I hear. And so what I hear is no one's going to know as if if you ever let someone know that this thing is going on, you will not be acceptable. you will no, you will not be wanted around. And I embodied this this sort of persona and this nature of being hyper aware of cues from people that would either indicate that I was doing something that wasn't acceptable or I was embodying something that wasn't acceptable. And then I was figuring out, okay, where's how and what and why am I going to fix this? And it, it really started to spiral out of control in high school um, when my prescription to Ritalin was switched to Adderall. And we had just moved from Houston to Austin, Texas. I was just starting high school. I didn't know anybody. I was an awkward freshman. But man, you know, the minute people discovered that I had a prescription to Adderall, all of a sudden I became, you know, a popular person. People wanted me around. People were inviting me to parties that before that were bullying me. All of a sudden, the people that I didn't want to cross paths with in the hallway. now putting their arms around my shoulders in the hallway and uh it felt phenomenal and i remember using adderall as a recreational drug for the first time and it was it was as if i had found a magical solution to every confusing problem that i had ever faced in my life Um, the i like i mentioned i was an awkward freshman i was slightly overweight and Adderall is an amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. For those of you who do not know, Adderall is an amphetamine that is used to treat ADHD. Um, and it's very effective. Um, and so if I take extra Adderall, all of a sudden uh, my, my metabolism is going, uh, I have boundless energy. I guarantee you I'm the life of the party. If I'm at the party and I'm on Adderall, not only do I, do I go 110% at the party, but I offer everyone else the same opportunity. Right, so I'm losing weight. I'm making friends. Uh, I'm finally getting, you know, uh, uh, women are starting girls are starting to take notice, and my relationship with my dad is getting better. You know, because finally, I'm sort of, I'm losing the weight. I'm, I'm, I'm tackling things in school that I couldn't tackle before. It, it, it appeared as if I had figured it out. All those unbelievably difficult and confusing problems in my life seemed to be solved in an instant and the ease that i could repeat the solution was unbelievably easy all i had to do was pop a pill that i already had i could solve this problem every day it cost me nothing this was this was as if i had figured it out finally it was like the universe had just said you know what you spent 16 years, not knowing how you're going to do this thing called life, here you go, we're going to give you a hand. And it worked. I mean, it worked. I got a scholarship to the school that I wanted to go to. And then in college, things really took a turn. Because like with most, most people who, um, who uh, end up using substances and abusing substances, there's this slight and sort of imperceptible shift from when you're using it and it's working to when it's no longer enough. And all of a sudden it was no longer enough and not enough was a a daily problem. And then it became, how much do I have left? And then it became a constant question of where am I going to get more? How much is it going to cost? How am I going to get the money to pay for it? My entire day was focused around the concerns uh, involving my substance, not the, the, the valuable and loving and meaningful bonds in life, um, my relationship with myself, the people that I wanted to share value with, the purpose I was trying to discover in my life, uh, building a future that makes sense and seems safe and uh, that I wanna be a part of. All of those meaningful, loving bonds that, I was, that, I, th- that a healthy, connected person would wanna show up and be present for, they weren't part of my day. It was just how do I figure out how I can continue to escape this life that had become now, kind of a daily uncomfortable experience. And I ended up dropping out of school and I I moved back to Austin, Texas. And I told my family that it was because I wanted to take a year off and work. But the real reason that I moved back to Austin was because that's where I knew uh, the dealers that I could buy from, and the doctors that I could start to scam, which is exactly what I started doing. I was doctor shopping. I was uh, buying and selling on the streets. I was treating people uh, and you know, like, I, mean, I was treating my family like absolute garbage. And I would only see them for brief moments of time where I would either blame them and shame them for the things that were going wrong in my life or to get money for them, from them so that I could get more drugs. And I started to really isolate at this point in my life. And I started to get very depressed and I developed a uh, secondary dependency to fast food. And on a daily basis, I would get up and throughout the course of the day, I'd eat about 5,000 calories of fast food a day. I mean, extra large pizzas from Papa John's, multiple cheeseburgers from McDonald's, uh, 20 sodas a day, uh, it, it, all the, the the breakfast tacos and the burritos. I mean, it was It was an unbelievable amount of food. And that's what I would be doing for about six to 12 days when I would be out of drugs. But man, when I had it, it would be six days straight of constant and consistent abuse. And what I mean by that is the average person who's prescribed Adderall will take about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. That's a typical prescription. I was doing a minimum of 450 to 1,000 milligrams a day. And I would do that for six days straight. And I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't eat. And I would end up in the beginning stages of a drug-induced psychosis by about day five. And then I would start to pop opiates so that I could force myself to sleep, wake up, binge on fast food, get more drugs, repeat the process. That was my life for well over multiple years. And it was at about this time, 2010, when my dad, you know, and I had given my dad every every legitimate reason in the world to give up on me at this point. And he came to me and he offered me the opportunity to attend an event called the Engine 2 Plant Strong Retreat. And it was a seven-day retreat with a man named Rip Esselstyn, who is the executive producer of the film, The Game Changers. That hadn't come out yet, of course. But at the time, he had written a book called The Engine 2 Diet. And his dad is the famous Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn from the film Forks Over Knives. And man, I didn't know who this dude was. I didn't care who he was. I sure as shit didn't want to know what he was talking about. The only thing I knew was if I said yes to my dad and went to this stupid plant-based thing that I would keep getting money from him. I could convince him that, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm working hard, it's tough, but hey, can you support me for another month? And I'm really trying, I could throw all the bullshit lies in his face if I just said yes and went to this thing. And that's exactly what I did. I went to the seven day retreat. I was high when I was there. I had drugs on me. I mean, I was diaphoretic, meaning I was flushed red. I would sweat through multiple shirts a day. Uh, I smelled toxic. You know, at the time, I, I, I rarely, I wouldn't really shower for weeks at a time. And I was kind of living like a hoarder. And there was, in fact, there was conversations throughout the retreat, apparently, with Rip and his team as to whether I was going to be removed from the program because apparently my appearance was very disruptive to people. What I now know about Rip, because he and I have become very dear friends, uh, is that, you know, Rip has a gift for seeing the good in people, and uh, I, I know that he would never uh, remove someone who clearly needed it the most. And I was there, and I heard these presentations from people like Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Michael Clapper, Doug Lyle, uh, Rip, um, luminary thought leaders. Uh, the in, in fact, there was a personal trainer there. His name is JP, Jean-Pierre. Uh, He was Ellen's trainer. He trained the the filmmaker, Sean Munson, who directed Earthlings. And um, he and I really connected. He actually had me watch Earthlings the first night when I was there. He had a copy of it. I couldn't watch the whole thing. I've never actually watched it all the way through. I've seen the movie, but I've never watched it straight through. I had to watch it in parts. And I wish I could tell you that's what did it. I wish I could tell you that when presented with knowledge on how I could not only take charge of my life, take charge of my health, but also no longer be a part of the industry that I saw in that film. Because I watched that film at the retreat, it was quite an experience. I wish I could say, hey, I saw this, and seven, after those seven days, boom, just took charge of my life. But, you know, when you are in pain, when you are suffering, you will do almost anything to be anything other than what you are, which is in pain. And I was simply not willing to let go of what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be. Uh, Until August 21st of 2012, I was 30 years old at the time. Uh, I had already developed erectile dysfunction for reasons I didn't understand. I was 350 pounds. Um, I was, uh, I, I mean, living hurt in every sense of the word, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And, you know, I had been practicing self-harm for like six, six months. I would stand in the mirror and I would beat myself um, to the point where I'd have bruises all over my body. I'd be bleeding. And I would do this because what I, I think my intent was, man, if I could just hate myself enough, and if I could just hate my life enough as it was, maybe then I'd want to do something about it. And the, the, the truth is that the only thing that would result from that behavior was a feeling of further disconnection from the ability to ever be part of what gave me my life meaning. And um, when you are living in full belief that today is the most painful day of your life and, and in full certainty that tomorrow will be worse, eventually tomorrow is not something you want to be a part of. And uh, on August 21st of 2012, I attempted suicide by overdose. Um, I didn't have a plan for it. I didn't write a note. I didn't call anyone. Uh, I just grabbed a handful of pills and threw them down my throat. And i I'd been on the verge of overdose before. So the beginning stages of this event was not something I was unfamiliar with, but it, it quickly became distinctly different. And I remember trying to stand up. I was sitting on my couch in my living room. And uh, as I mentioned before, I lived like a hoarder. Literally, the whole, the whole floor was littered with fast food garbage and empty pill bottles. And, and as I tried to stand up, I, I got very, very lightheaded. And black started to fade in from the sides of my periphery. And it felt like I got stabbed in the right side with a hot knife. And my entire right side of my body cramped. And all of a sudden, everything went black. And you know the feeling of of dying, and I don't mean the physical feeling that I just described to you. I mean uh, the feeling of dying that I was about to spend the last moment of my life uh, in a dark, hoarders-like apartment, completely separate from everyone and everything that's ever mattered to me. Not because they didn't want to be or try to be there for me, but because I had made it impossible for them to do so. It was the most terrifying experience of my life. Uh, and as I, you know, as the, everything went black, I, I experienced regret like I've never felt in my life. Um, and I woke up hours later in a puddle of my own vomit and I was just overwhelmed with relief. And that was an, a kind of confusing experience. And after a short period of time, I fully came to and realized what had just happened um, I, I I was able to pause and consider that that relief would only be present because there was something about myself and my life that I loved enough that even though I knew life today was still going to be painful, I, I still wanted to be a part of it. And that suicide, I had been believing from my whole life up until that point. I believe most people believe this they believe that suicide is someone wanting to end their life but suicide is someone wanting to end their pain that's what it is and i told myself that i you know i didn't i hadn't really you know to be fully honest i don't think i loved myself enough in that moment but i know that the phone call that i made was for the people that i loved enough and i called my dad and i asked for help And you know, it's interesting because I was that guy that if you loved me, if you're a friend of mine or you're a family member, you probably did at some point come up to me and say, hey, dude, what are you doing? Don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Don't you see what's happening as a result of the substance abuse that everyone knows is happening? You're not fooling anybody. Don't you know what's happening because of the foods that you're eating and the pain that it's causing? If, If you were that person and you came to the end to be like, man, you know. F you. This is how I'm gonna live my life. If you don't like it, fine, whatever. And if it costs me five years, fine. I'm fine. That's okay. I don't care. And I think back now, man. If I had been successful, shh, man, what would what would my family and friends not give for five extra years with me? What would my family not give for five days with me? Think about it. What would you not be willing to give up? And it's gonna be almost a zero list. What would you not give up for five hours with the person you've loved the most who's no longer here? And uh, my dad answered the phone and I said, as quickly as he answered, I need help. And without question or judgment, he said to me, you know, Adam, that's all we ever wanted. Um, And two weeks later, they helped me check into rehab where within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, chemically induced bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder, as well as obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication. And I was a walking cliche because i not only walked into rehab high uh, i was under full intent to get 28 days away from my substances come back and get a handle on it you know the the typical cliche story is uh, oh this time i'll go back and I'll, i'll be able to manage it and i'm so grateful i was that sick because it forced me to realize that if i wasn't willing to change everything about the way that i moved through my life I wasn't guaranteed five years sober or not, and uh, I wanted to immediately start to change the way that I ate, because it was like, as soon as I got these diagnoses, I was transported back to that seven-day retreat with Rip, where I heard, okay, diabetes reversible, heart disease reversible, obesity reversible, and... You know, I was being presented with two stories. One story coming from the, the plant strong retreat, another from the doctor in front of me. The doctor in front of me was saying, This is your life. You're, you're going to be on these medications for life. Diabetes is a chronic disease. You can't reverse it. You may be able to be on less medication, but it's never going anywhere. And we need to talk about, you know, the fact that as it gets worse, you can look at blindness, you could be seeing amputation. And, uh, heart disease is is the number one killer of diabetics. And so with your advanced cholesterol and blood pressure, this is already a threat for you. And you know, this is just the way it is. It's a genetic condition. And then I listened to the story coming from the plant strong retreat, which is, this is not genetics. Genetics is playing about an 8% role in this. What's actually happening is this is a very reasonable response to an abnormal way of living. And that, uh. I, if I was the cause of this situation, I get to be the solution. And so I tried to adopt a plant-based diet in rehab. They weren't about to let a diabetic eat a high carbohydrate diet in rehab, unfortunately. It's just the way it is. But after 37 days in rehab, I moved into a sober living facility in Santa Monica, California. And in this facility, you get to decide what you eat. You go to the house manager every week. He goes and does a, a grocery haul. And you write on a list all the things that you want him to buy for you. And I was living with about 12 other guys in their 20s. So you can imagine what they were eating. Literally, the house looked like it was stocked by a bunch of teenagers watching nothing but Nickelodeon commercials from the 90s. And uh, I walked up to the house manager, whose last name was is literally Hamburger. And I told him, look, I'm trying to do this, this plant-based thing. Will you, know, will you help me? He said, absolutely. What do you want? And he was asking that to a guy, me, who at that time, the only greens I really ate were the occasional piece of lettuce they forgot to take off my burger at McDonald's. And I'm like, I I don't know. Um, I know I, I know what foods I like enough, and that was oatmeal, black beans, brown rice, frozen veggie mix, and fruit. Can you get me that? And he said, absolutely and i can remember getting up the next day i walked into the kitchen and i opened the cabinet it was almost like the universe was playing a joke on me because they had put my oatmeal next to fruity pebbles and i don't know if you have fruity pebbles where you're from but fruity pebbles cereal is was my jam growing up i mean that in my opinion the greatest cereal to come out of the 80s fruity pebbles for sure um and i was like and it wasn't because it was next to the fruity pebbles that i was getting angry but i did i got very angry To the point of crying, actually. And the reason is because I didn't understand. I couldn't figure it out. Why in the world, if I knew that if I chose the fruity pebbles, that it would continue to make the things that were harming my life worse. And if I knew that if I chose the oatmeal, it would continue, it would start to empower me to live the life that I wanted. Why? if I knew these things, why in the world did I still want the Fruity Pebbles? Why couldn't this simply be a matter of intellect and will? Why couldn't I just wanna do this thing, have the tools to do it and then just freaking do it? I didn't get it. It was so hard for me to do it that I was literally standing there crying in anger. And I, I found a podcast or sorry, a Ted talk by a man named Dr. Doug Lyle, who's an evolutionary psychologist. And the TED Talk's title is The Pleasure Trap. And the whole thesis behind the talk is, if we know what to do to be happy and healthy, well, why is it so difficult to do it? And he explains that there's a biological mechanism that compels us to repeat behaviors that create higher dopamine responses because dopamine is like a guidance system that directs us towards behaviors that our body perceives as biologically beneficial. And if you think about it, our evolutionary story took place in environments of scarcity and difficulty. And if we didn't have this dopamine guidance system that would let us know that we found a food that had more calories per bite. And if those more calories per bite didn't trigger a higher dopamine response, we would have no way to figure out how to survive in an environment that didn't offer calories in abundance. We wouldn't be able to do it. We wouldn't know how to get the most for the least. That's what dopamine helped us do. But in the modern environment, over the last 100 years, there's been a phenomenal shift in the caloric environment to where now there's far more calories per bite than have ever existed in human history, and the ease that we can repeat and get those calories is higher than it's ever been. Our guidance system has no understanding that this shift has happened, and now we're being directed towards decisions that our body believes is the right thing to do when, in fact, we're self-destructing, that this is a reasonable response to an environment that has completely spun 180 degrees against our motivational system. When I heard this talk, all of this shame was lifted from me because I thought I was crying because I was weak. But what was being told and instructed and what I was hearing and learning was that the reason why I was crying, the reason it was hard is because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. This is a reasonable response to a decision that has calories that far exceed the human experience. And our body believes that it is unbelievably unsuccessful to pass it up. And it sort of alluded to this invariable truth that I I think is a part, like the root of all recovery in the beginning stages, is that you've got to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that if I could simply do that, be comfortable being uncomfortable, choose the oatmeal, eventually those dopamine receptors that had been dulled from overstimulation would regain sensitivity, that oatmeal is gonna taste a hell of a lot different. One day I'm gonna wake up and it's not gonna be a chore. Then one day I'm gonna wake up and I'm actually gonna look forward to this decision, to choosing the oatmeal. I just had to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable long enough for that process to happen. It's a biological process, it happens for everybody. I was determined, passionately relentless to see this process through. And from the outside looking in, someone would say, well, why in the world would this person want to be comfortable being uncomfortable? When well, you hear about it a lot in coaching, you know, find your why. And the obvious, from the outside, it looks like my obvious why is, oh, I'm obese, I have diabetes, I have heart disease, and I nearly died from substance abuse. That's why he wants to do it. And while it's true that those were occurring, it couldn't be further from the truth because nobody is motivated by negative consequences. The wonderful thing about negative consequences is that they highlight a loving and meaningful bond in your life that is being threatened. And it is that loving and meaningful bond in your life that is why you do what you do. That's why you do the things you already do. And it's why you learn to do things better or why you learn new things so that you can be more fully present with those loving and meaningful bonds. If there wasn't something meaningful being threatened, What's the consequence? Who cares? There would be no need to try if nothing was being threatened. It's what's being threatened that matters. It isn't the, concept, the negative thing. It isn't the diet. No one cares about their obesity. Nobody cares about their diabetes. They care about what those things can take from them. And it is those things, that's your why. That's my motivation. And I would get up every single day. I would prepare a meal on a plate that was about health and wellness. I used it as an affirmation of recovery. I used it as an intention for my day. I used it as a, a way to connect fully to my potential to be present with what was meaningful and what can be more meaningful tomorrow. Within four months, the diabetes and heart disease, erectile dysfunction was completely gone. Within 10 months, I'd lost over a hundred pounds. Within a year, I was off of all of my psych meds, my antidepressants, my mood stabilizers, my sleeping medications, my anxiety medications, everything. And, uh, i'm I've been nine years sober as of uh September of this year, and it's just been i've lost like i say hundred and eighty pounds uh, it's been an incredible journey
1: Wow, what a story yeah what a story thanks firstly thanks for sharing that with us oh my pleasure so um, yeah i
0: mean for, for a long winded answer I'd say two thousand and ten is really where my uh journey towards veganism started. But, you know, it wasn't veganism until about a year after I uh, checked into treatment. It was just, you know, focused on health.
1: We, uh, we like to round out this with a fun little series of questions called the Fast okay. Five. Okay. So just go. answer the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? All right. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. What's your favorite animal? Dog. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oatmeal. Oh, of course. <laughs> What's your favorite vegan film or documentary?
0: It's it's not technically a vegan documentary, but it is about animals. It's called Winged Migration.
1: Winged Migration. I have to check mm-hmm. that out.
0: Yeah, it's 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 it's. However, I would say that my favorite vegan documentary of all time uh would have to be uh it would have to be earthlings because it was the first one i ever watched
1: i would actually challenge anybody <laughs> <that isn't laughs> vegan to try and sit through earthlings and yeah. justify why you aren't vegan
0: yeah and for just those of you like who are watching a trigger warning if you are going to go on to to watch it because it's free to watch uh just prepare yourself it it, it it's very graphic
1: mm. it's of like the worst horror th- film you could you could imagine of I'm sort really I'm really in 9 minutes um yeah. yeah so one activity that brings you the most joy in life weightlifting yeah nice yeah. and finally i think you'll like this one favorite quote or mantra or it can be an affirmation
0: yeah okay i know exactly what this is um my good friend david clark uh passed away a few years ago Um, he was a vegan ultra runner, uh, who was an alcoholic who weighed 300 pounds. Um, and he died from complications to back surgery. Uh, but he had a quote that I try to share every time I do a podcast. Um, we all know the quote, we all know the saying, if you want to be happy, live like it's the last day of your life. You've probably heard that before. Uh, David says the real quote should be, if you want to be happy treat everyone else as if they were living the last day of their life and um wow. that's the quote i would leave it with
1: oh wow i haven't yeah. heard that one that's that that's yeah. great that's great yeah so thanks so much adam where can audience members connect with you you mentioned your social media
0: yeah so uh plant-based addict um, is my instagram um, i also am a uh, a coach with mastering diabetes if you or someone you know is suffering from diabetes go to masteringdiabetes.org you can apply and you can i can actually you can actually request to have me be your coach um, you can also if you're looking for weight loss coaching or fitness coaching you can reach out to me directly on instagram i do coaching private coaching um also my nonprofit plantbasedforpositivechange.org. if you want to donate to the nonprofit. donate to our research study. We're going to be doing follow-up research. We're always involved in the next thing. Uh, you can find me there.
1: Cool, cool. Yeah. And any other projects or anything that you're currently working on that you'd like to share? Uh, I'm currently working
0: on a book. So um, we're, we're, we're developing, we're finishing the, the, the proposal. We'll be submitting it soon. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm working with a great agent and, and uh, co-writer. So
1: I'm very excited. Oh, can you reveal the name or too soon? uh no
0: nah, we don't have a working title yet so okay but right now right now the working title is just plant-based addict so yeah
1: okay cool well thank, thank you. well thanks thanks for
0: uh yeah, yeah. exactly um thanks for playing that game. i always get so nervous with that game it's like oh it's so much pressure
1: <laughs> no that was great man thank you thank you again so much oh my pleasure thank you for having me really